All right, we come back to the book of Exodus. So if you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 19. Exodus 19. While you're turning there, let me say a special word of welcome to our guests who are with us this morning. Uh, We're very glad you're here. Uh, We love having guests. You're always welcome anytime, and we certainly pray that uh, your time with us this morning will be a blessing to your soul and and an encouragement to you. Uh, Let me also mention, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have some in the seats in front of you, and you can find our passage this morning on page 60 in those Bibles if you want to use one of those. Uh, This morning, as we continue now, after a break in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Exodus, uh, we begin a study within that book on two of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. Uh, Over the next few weeks, we're going to be studying together Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. In Exodus 19, we will see Israel come to the mountain of God. We will see what happens leading up to God giving them the Ten Commandments. And then in Exodus 20, we will look at the Ten Commandments themselves. My prayer is that this will be a gospel study. That these will be gospel sermons. We will see the glory of God at the mountain... And in the commandments, and I pray we will see the beauty of Christ, I know that God is going to show to us in these chapters the wickedness of man, including our own wickedness, but we will also see here the great mercy of God. Uh, I am asking you to join me in praying that God will use these two chapters to refresh in our hearts and minds God's moral calling on our lives. Who are we to be as the church of Christ in this world? And so pray hard that God would be at work as we do the work of unpacking these two chapters. Now, the very first truth for us to see about the Ten Commandments in particular, is that they came to Israel in a covenantal context. In other words, we tend to almost skip Exodus 19 and run to Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, but the fact is the Ten Commandments are part of something bigger. The Ten Commandments are the moral obligations placed upon Israel when they entered into a covenant relationship with God. Just as a man and his bride exchange promises as they marry one another, so in these verses there are promises that are going to be made between God and Israel. Theirs was to be a precious relationship. A glorious relationship. And the Ten Commandments were agreed to by the people of Israel as the terms that they would keep as God's holy and special nation. And so bigger than the Ten Commandments is the covenant itself. That this ancient nation had a covenant relationship with God. And this is really important for us because we who are Christians are also in a covenant relationship with God. 
the relationship that this Old Testament nation that Israel had with God, we call that the Old Covenant. The relationship that we have as believers in Jesus Christ with God is called the New Covenant. And they're more alike than you might think. And so I think you'll see some parallels. And I think you'll find that there are some huge lessons for us here in Exodus 19. So look with me at what happens in verses 1 through 8. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of God. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses came and he called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So it is now three months, three months to the day since Israel left Egypt. And three months to the day, They come to the wilderness of Sinai. Uh, This is a hilly desert region right around the base of this mountain. Remember, when the Israelites left Egypt, they expected to go northeast. They thought they were going to Canaan. Uh, But Moses has been leading them south. He's been leading them in the opposite direction. He's been leading them to this mountain because God had revealed to Moses way back at the burning bush that Israel had an appointment to keep with God at this mountain. And so now after three months of hunger and thirst and Amalekites and God providing at every turn, they've come to the mountain. Everyone has arrived, and we're talking hundreds of thousands, some scholars say up to two million Israelites encamped around this mountain. And Moses goes up the mountain, and there, Almighty God speaks to Moses. Now, what do you think that was like? James Earl Jones, booming voice, grave and deep We don't know. We're not told. Uh, Later, we're going to be told that God would speak to Moses face to face as a man with his friend. Uh, Not that Moses was actually seeing God's face, but that just as two people converse in real conversation, just like if you and I were to have a conversation together and hear each other, so God 
talked to Moses, and Moses talked to God, and they heard each other. So, so Moses likely did hear an audible voice at the mountain, at least a voice audible to him. We'll talk more about this later, but we see Moses here acting as a mediator. God speaks to Moses and gives to Moses the words to deliver to the people. And later, the people will give words to Moses to take back up to God. Moses is the go-between. He's the mediator. And what does God tell Moses to say to the people of Israel? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is bringing to Israel the terms of their relationship. It is God who has brought Israel to Himself. It is God who has made them His very own. And now if they will obey His voice and keep the covenant He is establishing with them, they will be tremendously blessed. So Moses receives this word from God. And he goes down the mountain. And the tribal elders are gathered together. And Moses shares with the elders what God has said. And the elders represent all the people. And on behalf of all the people, the elders agree to this covenant. They say something rather presumptuous. (laughs) All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses goes back up the mountain and delivers that word back to God. What I want to do this morning is take these verses and make eight observations about God's covenant with Israel... But with each of these eight observations, I also want to say something about God's covenant with us who believe in Jesus Christ. So with each point, I'm going to say something about then, and I'm going to say something about now. I'm going to say something about the old covenant then, and now the new covenant. So does that make sense to everybody? Here we go. Number one, then. When Israel came to Mount Sinai, they came as a people saved by grace and brought by God to Himself. Look at what God says in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. In other words, the very first thing, the very first thing God wants Israel to realize is that He has saved them. He has been their Redeemer. He has delivered them from their bondage. For 400 years, that's longer than the United States has existed. For 400 years, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And as the Israelites grew more in number, the Egyptians grew more and more hostile. You did not want to be an Israelite newborn baby boy in the latter years of Egyptian slavery. The decree had been issued, you would be cast into the Nile and drowned. The workload was increasing. The provisions were diminishing. And Israel was suffering in their slavery. 
And God, through mighty acts, saved the people of Israel. And He brought them to Himself. He saved them through ten plagues. He saved them through the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. He brought them through the desert where they lacked food and where they lacked water, and He provided for them. He brought them through uh, war against the Amalekites, and He gave them victory, though the Amalekites were much better warriors and had many more people. Do you see the goodness of God here? God says, I bore Israel up on eagles' wings. Uh, Philip Ryken points out that the eagle is both a fierce bird of prey. (laughs) The eagle swoops down and attacks its enemies the way God attacked Egypt. But the eagle has also been used as a bird of rescue to deliver. Uh, A great example is in The Hobbit, uh, the book by J.R.R. Tolkien. I love how Tolkien... uh, presents this twice in that novel we find eagles coming to swoop down and deliver Bilbo Baggins and his dwarven friends from their danger Uh, towards the end of the hobbit when the heroes are surrounded by legions of goblins and all hope seems to be lost Bilbo thinks it will not be long now before the goblins win the gate and we are all slaughtered or driven down or captured But soon after we read this, the clouds were torn by the wind and a red sunset slashed the west. Seeing the sudden gleam in the gloom, Bilbo looked around and he gave a great cry. He had seen a sight that made his heart leap, dark shaped, small yet majestic against the distant glow. The eagles, he shouted. It's the eagles. The eagles are coming. And if you know the story, the eagles come and they bring deliverance. They they come to rescue at the last moment Bilbo and his friends out of danger. Well, like the eagles in that story, God says, I have been an eagle for you, Israel, and I have delivered you out of precarious circumstances. And now, we too have been saved by grace and brought by God to Himself. Israel's bondage in Egypt was only a picture of a greater bondage. The bondage of every man, woman, boy, and girl to their own sin. All of us were at one time dead in our sins under the spell of the devil. Walking in blind selfishness, headed towards hell. If God had not delivered us, we would have suffered a fate far worse than drowning in the Nile we would have experienced the just wrath of God against our every sin forever. But praise God, like an eagle sent for our deliverance, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth and He did everything necessary to rescue us. And through the Holy Spirit, God has opened our eyes and He has given us faith and He has now brought us to Himself. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian, I pray that what is in your heart right now is this. He has saved my soul. What grace. What a sweet salvation. What a marvelous deliverance that I have received from my God. Number two. Then God declared to Israel the terms of their covenant relationship. 
You see, a covenant relationship is a relationship built on promises. Marriage is a fine example of this. It is the most sacred of covenants between two people. A man and his bride make precious promises to each other before God, and their marriage will only be as strong as their trust in each other and in each other's word. Well, anytime we're talking about a divine covenant, a covenant with God, get this, it's always God who sets the terms. It's always God who declares what this relationship is going to look like. Why? Because He's the Creator and we are the creature. He is the potter and we are the clay. The clay doesn't tell the potter what the relationship is going to look like. God speaks to Israel through Moses and He speaks as both a divine king and now as Israel's redeemer And he says, I have brought you to myself. I have made you mine. And here is how our relationship is going to work. Now, God has also declared to us the terms of our covenant relationship. Many people today want to try and dictate to God what their relationship to him should look like. Uh, They may not say this. But they live this way. God, you just keep giving me what I need and don't expect too much from me. Or God, I don't really want you around until I'm in trouble and really need you. But then I want you on my beck and call. Or God, I know you say in your Bible that those who have a relationship with you are to do this and this. But I don't really like doing that. So go ahead and just forgive me, and that way I won't have to worry about it. Friends, you and I don't get to do that. We don't get to tell God how our relationship with Him is going to work. We are the creature, He is the creator, and we were the hell-bound, in dire straits, in troubled ones, and He came and delivered us. He has every right To set the terms of our relationship. He has every right because of his role as God. And every right because of his role as Redeemer. And the fact that he is good. And wiser than us. And loves us more than we love ourselves. Means that we should want him to set the terms. We should want him to set the terms of this relationship. Number three. Number three. Then. God's covenant with Israel promised blessing for obedience. So here are the terms that God reveals through Moses to Israel of how this covenant precious relationship is going to work. Israel, you obey my voice, you keep my commandments, and I will bless you. And I'm not going to just bless you a little bit. (laughs) I'm going to bless you tremendously. You will be my treasured possession. The whole earth is mine, Israel, but you are going to be my treasured possession. The apple of my eye. You will be a kingdom of priests. Not just a few priests. The whole kingdom, every one of you, will have a priestly function. And you will be my holy nation, a set-apart nation, a nation distinct from every other nation of the world. Those are the terms. Israel, 
Hear my voice and obey and I will bless you. And now, in the new covenant, God's covenant with us also promises blessing for obedience. Blessing for obedience. Remember, the covenant in Exodus 19 isn't about Israel being saved out of their slavery. They've already been saved by God and by grace. The covenant made at Mount Sinai is how Israel is now to live as God's child. Remember, earlier in Exodus, God already called uh, Israel his son. So now that they've been brought into this relationship with God, now that they've been saved by grace, how now shall they live? In the new covenant, we have been saved by grace. We don't obey God in order to be saved. We obey God because he's already graciously saved us. Yet in the New Testament, we see again and again that this principle remains true. That under the new covenant, God promises blessing for obedience. Think about Luke 11, verse 28. A woman has just cried out from the crowd to Jesus. And she said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And how does Jesus respond to that lady in the crowd? He says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Who's blessed? Who does God promise to bless? Those who hear the word of God and keep it. If you obey the word of God, you will be more blessed than Mary was by virtue of her being the mother of Jesus. Obedience brings the blessing of God upon his children. In my family, my children are my children no matter what they do. I'm going to love my boys no matter what they do. But when they obey, they can expect blessing. And when they are disobedient, they can expect discipline. And that's how it was with God and His Son Israel. And that's how it is with God and all of us who are in His family. Yes, you are saved by grace, but if you are living in disobedience, you have no grounds to expect the blessing of God right here and right now. And if you keep walking in disobedience, you will ultimately show that you were never God's at all. Because true children of God love Him. True children of God seek to obey Him. Listen carefully to James 1, verse 25. And let these words fall on you. Okay? James says, To the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in the doing. In other words, James is writing to New Testament Christians, those who have been saved by grace. And he tells them to look into the perfect law of God, the law of God summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. He calls it the law of liberty. People today don't see the Ten Commandments as a law of liberty. We'll talk more about that. It is. James says that when we look into the law of liberty, we are not to be people who who look at it and forget it. We hear God's commands and it goes in one ear and out the other. No, James says that for the one who actually hears God's word and then does it, that Christian will be blessed in the doing. Meaning even in the process of obedience. 
even as you're going about your life seeking to faithfully fulfill the callings God has given you, He will be blessing you. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I simply want to ask you this question. Are you living in obedience to your God? Think about your life. Are you truly and sincerely seeking to obey God in every area of your life? Is it your solemn commitment and your endeavor to conform every part of your life to God's good will for you? Or are there some parts of your life that you're still holding back? Is something in your life that you are now refusing to surrender to God? My friends, you have no grounds to expect that God will bless you as long as you live in presumptuous disobedience. I'm not talking about the sins that we fall into from time to time, even though we're fighting against them. I'm not talking about the sins that you're battling. I'm talking about areas of your life where even though God is your God and He has saved you, you are knowingly continuing in that sin and you're not even fighting. You're living in known disobedience and you're content to do so. If there is any part of your life where you are living in known disobedience to God, do not expect His blessing. Expect His discipline. Because he's a good father. And he's going to do what he must do to love you. And to care for you. The discipline of God can be painful. So turn from your sin. The blessing of God is wonderful. And the blessing of God not only benefits you, but many others in your life. Here is how to be blessed by God. Live in obedience to the one who saved you. Number four. I think this is as far as we're getting this morning. Then. Then. God's covenant with Israel was not a covenant of works, but a covenant established upon God's grace, placing upon Israel the requirement that they now live as a faithful, redeemed people. So I want us to read that one more time. It's there in your notes. God's covenant with Israel was not a covenant of works, but a covenant established upon God's grace, placing upon Israel the requirement that they now live as a faithful, redeemed people. Why is that important? It's important because it is really remarkable what people do with Exodus 19 and 20. If you've been with us for this verse-by-verse study of Exodus, you know that everything up to this point has been grace, grace, and more grace. It was God's grace that spared Israel from the ten plagues. It was God's grace that spared their firstborn sons by the blood of lambs when all the firstborn sons of Egypt were being struck down. It was God's grace that he didn't strike Israel down in the desert when they kept grumbling and rebelling and, and not believing And instead, he gives them clean water to drink and manna falling down from the sky. The Amalekites attack and God gives them the victory. It's been grace everywhere. Undeserved favor of God. And suddenly we get to Exodus 19. And people seem to think that God is suddenly throwing grace out the window. 
Israel, it's been grace all the way up to the mountain, but nope, no more grace for you. We're done with grace. If you're to be my people, you must obey me perfectly every jot and tittle. And if you disobey me at any point whatsoever in the most minute way, I will curse you and you will be my people no longer. Friends, if God's covenant with Israel was a strict covenant of works, how long would that relationship have lasted? One millisecond? (laughs) Because even as Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments on the mountain, what are the people of Israel doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. If God's covenant with Israel was a strict covenant of works, demanding that they be perfect or else they be cut off from God forever, Israel would have ceased to be God's people right there at the very beginning of the nation. This covenant is not like the covenant with Adam in the garden. It's not. In the garden, there was only one commandment for Adam to keep. He must not eat of that one tree. But if he ate of it, that was it. It was a true covenant of works. And that one sin, eating of that tree, was enough to bar him from the garden and to remove him from paradise in God's presence. One sin, Adam, and that's it. Not so with Israel. God has been with them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, though they were sinning the whole way. They were grumbling, and they were complaining, and they were disbelieving. And where was God's special presence? Right there with them. Grace. God is about to give instructions for a tabernacle to be set up right in the heart of the camp. And God is going to place His special presence right in the middle of these people. If God required Israel to be perfect, for His special presence to be with them, How long would that tabernacle have been there? But as Israel kept sinning, God remained with them and remained with them in the heart of a camp for so long, persevering, being patient, overflowing in grace. Indeed, we know that God's covenant with Israel was not about perfection because God included in the covenant the priesthood and the sacrificial system. In other words, God included in this covenant ways for Israel to deal with their sins. God included ways for Israel to have confidence that when they had sinned, there were ways for those sins to be atoned for and forgiven. The old covenant was not about Israel earning God's favor through perfect obedience. Rather, it was about Israel as God's graciously redeemed people being now called to live in a way that honors Him. The requirement was being placed upon these people for them to live as the redeemed people that they were, as the people, as the children of God. When you're adopted by a king, there are now certain requirements that come with that great privilege. The the king's glory and the king's name are now attached to you. So Israel, the king of glory has redeemed you. The king of glory has made you his own. Now live as people who bear the name of the king of glory. And now, God's covenant with us is not a covenant of works, praise God, but a covenant established upon God's grace placing upon us the requirement that we now live as a faithful, redeemed people. 
Like Israel, we must confess, and I hope we love to confess, that our salvation is entirely owing to the grace of God. Israel was saved from bondage to Egypt by the grace of God. We've been saved from our bondage to sin and to Satan and the world by the grace of God. Our salvation rests on Jesus Christ and the grace God has given us in Him. And our salvation cannot fail because Jesus cannot fail. But the fact that we are saved by grace through the blood of Jesus does not change God's requirement that we live in this new covenant as a faithful people. Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Yes, you've received a gracious calling. Like Jesus standing over dead Lazarus and saying, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus has spoken by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God into your soul that was dead in sin. And He brought forth life and He called you to Himself and it was all of grace. And Paul says, yes, you were called of grace. Now seek to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Ephesians 4.17 This I say and testify in the Lord you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In other words, now that you've been redeemed, you can't live the way you lived before you were redeemed. You can't live as if you haven't been changed, as if there isn't a new owner of your life. Oh dear Christian, you once lived like the world in all sorts of selfish and pagan indulgence. Now you must not walk as the world walks. Can't you hear God saying to Israel, Israel, you've been in Egypt for 400 years. You've been influenced by Egyptian religion and Egyptian lifestyle and all of these pagan ways. But now you're mine. You can't live the way the Egyptians did. You must hear my voice. Obey what I tell you to do. And so also Jesus comes, not just as Savior, but as Lord to us and says, follow me. Which means hear what I say and do it. So it was with Israel, so it is with us. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Do you know you can please the Father? You can please your Father. How can you please your Father? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Dear Christian, don't you want to please the heart of the One who saved you? You can please the heart of the One who loves you with unimaginable love. How? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. One more. 1 John 2, verse 6, Whoever says he abides in Him, whoever says, I belong to God, I am His and He is mine, and we are together in covenant relationship, and I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I have a relationship with God. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We are to be little pictures of Christ. In our workplaces and in our homes, walking the way Christ walked. God says to Israel, I'm a holy God, now be holy as I am holy. 
be an expression of my character here on earth. And John says the same thing. If you claim to be abiding in Jesus Christ, you walk worthy of Jesus Christ. You be an expression of him here on earth. Have his priorities. Are your priorities Christ's priorities? Let his will be your will. Let his love and compassion and righteousness and honesty and integrity govern your life, shape you. Friends, the Bible is as clear as it can be that we as Christians are going to mess up and we're going to fall down over and over and over again. And praise God, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, even future sins. But even living in the grace of God, even with our feet planted firmly in God's mercy, we are called to a heartfelt, blood-earnest, genuine striving after holiness. Moreover, we are promised that because we have the Spirit and because He has set us free from our former bondage to sin, we really can see great gains in holiness in this life. And so resting in the blood of Jesus and amazed at the grace of God, we are to joyfully give our all in seeking to be doers and not just hearers of the word. And when we do, we will find that God brings his blessing. So as we close, I need to say a word here to anyone who is not a Christian. Because throughout this entire sermon, I've been talking about Israel and their covenant with God, and I've been talking to Christians about our covenant with God through Jesus. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, you are not in a covenant with God. You have no covenant. The only relationship you have with God is one where sin stands between you and Him and His righteous wrath is piling up against you every single second of every minute of every day. And he is being patient towards you. So patient. But there will be a day when his patience comes to an end. God is good. And he made you to be a good person. He made you to be a holy person. But your life has gone another direction. And you've chosen to lie. And you've chosen to hate. And you've chosen to live for self. And God has every right as the potter to destroy this vessel that has not turned out the way it was originally intended. But instead, He has given you an opportunity to repent. And He has brought you here this morning and He has charged me to tell you that the door of salvation is open to you. You can have a relationship with God where He is not your condemner any longer. He is your Father. Through Jesus, God has done everything necessary so that you can have peace with Him. I said earlier that God gets to set the terms of our covenant relationship. Do you know what's at the heart of the terms of the new covenant? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so while I'm calling Christians in this room, obey your God who has graciously redeemed you, I'm calling unbelievers to something else. You need to believe first. Come rest in the mercy of Jesus Christ and find salvation for your soul. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.